This morning, we are moving into a new section in Luke this morning. Luke chapter 3, verses, uh, all of chapter 3 through chapter 4, verses 13. Verse 13. There's going to be three messages out of this section on what we're calling the preparation, the preparation time. Actually, John the Baptist required some preparation for ministry, and even Jesus required some preparation for ministry. And God has used everything in your life until this day to prepare you for ministry. So this week, as uh, Russ Norcross came into the office, and we recorded an episode of the Chack Insider podcast. In fact, it's episode three. And Russ, would you wave, wave your hand over there just so that people can see where you are? There's Russ over there. Russ, can I, can I tattle on how old you are, Russ? 86 years young, and he comes to the second service. He, he doesn't like the music, but he doesn't like to get up early. No, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. But no, Russ, it's just a 20-minute episode. So if, you, if you're a podcast listener, you can just search for Chack Insider Podcast, and you'll find it. And within that feed is the Sunday messages and then episodes, now, they're very different, right? So the Sunday messages are just a, a rehash of Sunday, right? It's exactly what we're saying this morning. But then the episodes, as we begin to build them, they're, they're, a lot of them are going to be stories. Your stories, the stories of what God is doing uh, here at Community Heights and in our community, what the church is involved in in our community. And this one, uh, episode three, so you can get it if you have a podcast player. You could go, to, uh, you could go on your uh, uh, browser, mobile, or on your desktop, just go to communityheights.org and under the media tab, just click podcast. And you'll see episode three and you'll hear Russ's story. So this is the guy that sits down the row from you that, that you probably don't know and he's got an awesome story. So uh, I'll, I'll save it. I'll save it for when you listen to it and uh, you will enjoy it. Preparation. Preparation. Here's what I wrote. In this passage, we will see that all of John the Baptist's life was preparation for his public ministry. And his ministry would be preparing the way for the Lord, for Jesus. All of our lives are preparation too. And the question is, have you started your public ministry, which might be a private ministry? Let's say your uh, Today ministry, everything in your life that God has brought you to today, what, how are you leveraging it? What, are you, what is happening in your life where you are using your gifts and abilities and experiences and relationships and struggles and trials and victories and successes to serve the Lord today? Because you know what? We're all serving the Lord. We're all serving God just how? Well, wait, let, me, let, me, let me change that. We're all serving, but are we serving God? And how are we serving God? Because some Christians, they actually, some Christians feel like they should be serving God in a certain way, and in reality, that's really not the way maybe their parents thought they should serve that way, or the people in their church thought that they should serve that way, or there was a need, so they just stepped forward. And you know, you got to be careful now, I'm a pastor, and I'll tell you this. Be careful in a church when you step forward for a need. It could be forever and ever, amen, 
right? You're in that role, you're in that position, and you've got to stay there. And maybe that's you. I don't know, maybe that's you in this church, or that's you somewhere in your life, but God has actually prepared you to serve the same way that he prepared John to serve, and the same way that he prepared actually, can God prepare God? right? But the God-man, Jesus Christ, was prepared for ministry as we see as we go on in Luke. So whatever that looks like, have you started? God has prepared you to serve him. And what does that look like for you? So if we were writing the story of your life and we had to decide, uh, let's say you're writing the story of your life and I'm writing the story of my life, and we're the ones who decide what that preparation pathway is going to look like. So we lay out the scope and sequence of what will prep us and have us ready to serve the Lord. Do you know that it will never look like the pathway that God ends up taking us on? It's never going to look that way. Because our, our picture is going to look like a lazy boy and a hammock and a banquet. But God's picture is going to look like a rocky road and a cliff and uh, uh, maybe no food, all right, or, or just bread and water. See, because God ends up, see, God has this sinful world to work with. We think that we can detour around the sinful world and detour around pain and suffering and detour around uh, um, loss and failure and that we could just have win, 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 and we can have our best year. Well, that's great, but it's also a great marketing scheme, right? That's a great marketing scheme. You're going to have your best year. Well, you're going to have your best year. I don't know if you'll define it as your best, but if we leverage it with, through the Holy Spirit, God can make it our best. So the way we would decide to prepare ourselves is not necessarily the way God would decide. So if you and I were going to sit down over a cup of coffee, it would be one cup because I don't drink coffee, so that would be your cup of coffee. If we were going to do that and I could ask you about your life, what would I find out about you? What would I find out? Because the truth is we all have a story. All of us has a story. You can listen to Russ's story, just a part of his story. It's just a teaser because you'd have to talk to him about the rest of the story. But all of us have a story. And if I were to ask you, you would tell me about your experiences. We're all here, right? We've had experiences. What kind of experiences have you had? And how have your experiences shaped you to be the person you are today? That's a big question. And in the experiences that you have, speak to how God is going to leverage you for kingdom purposes. And I would also ask you about your joys. What makes you happy? What has brought you blessing in life? How about your trials or your pain or your struggles? What have you gone through that's been deep and dark and forming and shaping in your soul? How about victories? Have you had victories? What have they looked like? Have you had failures? What does that look like? Have you had successes and sorrows? So if you look at that list, you've got experiences at the top, and then you've got eight things. Three of them are positive, and five of them are not positive. Five of them are painful. And I did that on purpose because God uses the pain in our lives to shape us and form us more than he uses the pleasure. 
So if you want to be on a football team and you go to the locker room or you go out on the gridiron for practice, you're not going to find any lazy boys. It doesn't look anything like the furniture store. Because in the furniture store, everything's fluffy and soft and comfortable. And it's designed to put you to sleep. But that's not the way it is if you're going to be a football player. If you're going to get out on the gridiron, if you're going to get out on the field, if you're going to hit hard, if you're going to take no prisoners, if you're going to get the ball across the goal line, there's no lazy boys. They're all in the stands, right? All the lazy boys are in the stands, and we're, we're all watching the football player. But it's the same in life. When God's preparing us, he doesn't use the happy, fluffy, soft stuff as much as he will use. Now, this is a great theological discussion now too, right? How much pain does God bring into our lives? And then how much of it is the world and the choices of others and sin and the brokenness of the world crashing in on us and God's there next to us with his arm around us saying, I got you, I got you through this, and I'm going to take what Satan means for evil and we're going to make good out of it if you hang on to me. That's a lot of it right there. Because God is not the author of sin, he's not the author of death, he's the giver of life, and he's the giver of restoration and redemption. That's what God does in our lives. So, if I were to sit down and talk with you, uh, I'd probably hear about pain. This is interesting. My wife and I have talked about this. Um, The people that you see that have not gone through any pain they're not very deep. They're kind of shallow. Now, I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just a reality. The more tough stuff you go through, the deeper you get as a person. Have you noticed that? If you've gone through tough stuff, you realize, wow, I'm different. I'm different after this. I'm different. God can use me in different ways and in different people's lives because of what I've been through. Getting back to the passage, in a short 20 verses, Luke tells a quick story, and it's part of the story, but it's most of the story in terms of the time period of John the Baptist, because John the Baptist got a bum steer. He got the short end of the stick. He got a raw deal. I mean, he spent all these years in the wilderness toughening up, receiving a message from God. He calls the people of Israel into the wilderness with him near the Jordan River. He gives the message. So many of them come and identify with his message and identify with repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then the boss ends up throwing him in jail. And then the boss's girlfriend gets mad at him and they chop his head off. I mean, it's like ISIS-type stuff, right? We're horrified when we've seen that in the last number of years. That's what happened to John the Baptist. And so often we, like, we read the Bible and we sanitize it in our minds. John the Baptist, he got a raw deal. He was following God. He was following God, and he has to rot in jail. Then he gets his head chopped off. That's not the American dream. And the American dream isn't the kingdom of God. But we'll get to that in a few minutes. In in Luke chapter 3, verse 1, 
Luke locates, this is so interesting, Luke locates the story. He locates where John the Baptist was in time and space. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and his son-in-law Caiaphas, in case you needed to locate it if you were checking things out to make sure we were accurate, he says, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So again, the 400 silent years, and then all of a sudden, the word of God comes to the prophet. This is going to be God's prophet, the New Testament prophet, John the Baptist, who is going to speak the oracle of God out to the people of God. And John is in the wilderness. He's in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. This repentance for the forgiveness of sins, um, this is interesting, and we're going to see that this is, what, this is what James taught, this is what Jesus taught, this is what Paul taught. In the full scope of of the teaching of the New Testament, the teaching of the gospel, this is in line with what the others taught. And then he says, Luke writes, as it is written, here fulfilled, right? John is fulfilling the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet. And here's what Isaiah said in Isaiah 40. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. This was John's message. He was preparing the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. My wife and I traveled back from Charlottesville, Virginia uh, in our four-cylinder Equinox, which is not to be driven from Charlottesville, Virginia anywhere to like western Ohio. But the mountains, right? These mountains, I don't know, the smoky Blue Ridge, whatever they are, mountains. And I like driving in Iowa. This is, by the way, this is driving in Iowa. I mean, that's, I love driving in Iowa. It's so easy. I remember the first time our plane landed, my wife and I got in our rental car in Omaha, and we headed up 29 towards Sioux City. And I was like, I'd never in my life. They don't have these in New York. New York, it's, it's like this, and it's, everything, it's diagonal. There's no north-south type stuff. It's just wherever. And here, we're just like driving straight. It was, it was crazy. It's like, that we, in New York, you call those drag strips, right? Drag, put, the metal, put the pedal to the metal and just go. So anyway, you want to smooth things out. And in the Old Testament, not in the Old Testament, in, in, in the ancient Near East, people had to travel. They didn't have these environmentally controlled cabins that we have with wheels on them that we can just go wherever in whatever kind of weather. And, and so these words, these words, uh, the crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth. This is like a dream. They would love that. They would love the rocky path to be paved, but they didn't have that much back then except for where the Roman Empire put a lot of time and a lot of elbow grease. So, and, and then in verse 6, it ends the, this quote from Isaiah, and all people 
will see God's salvation. There's a hint of what is to come. All people are going to see. And this was John's message. He was fulfilling the message of the prophet Isaiah. Verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Now, John Patterson and I were talking about this this week, and we both looked at each other like, that's kind of blunt. Like if he either, any of us pastors came up here and just said, uh, you brood of vipers, you brood of vipers, vipers, all of you, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. I'd be like, you know, we're not used to being talked to like that. We're going to see later on, though, that John is exhorting people. He's exhorting people. Now, to be fair, in the other Gospels, you see they record that he uses this term brood of vipers for the Pharisees, okay? So Luke might be summarizing here, and the brood of vipers might not have been uh, uh, proclaimed to all the people, but particularly to the Pharisees. There's still room to understand it like that. He said, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, again, this is the message of James, right? Faith without works is dead. Because by definition, faith is belief. And if you believe something, then you'll act on it. Like, I believe that I'm old enough and out of shape enough now that if I were to jump onto that floor from this level I don't really want to do that. I believe I don't want to do that. Therefore, I'm not going to do it. You'd have to pay me a lot of money to do it. Now, my son, he could come up here and he could probably jump off of this thing and over the table and down, and he'd be fine. But my belief informs my actions. And this is what John the Baptist is saying. Have your belief inform your actions. Produce fruit or actions in keeping with this, with this repentance, with this changing of your mind. So you've come out of this, this dead orthodoxy, which we know from the Gospels to be the spiritual life of Israel because the priests are trying to hang on to their power. The, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they're holding on to their power so much so that when the Messiah shows up, they're like, no, 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 no. What you do is the work of the devil. I mean, how much more blind, really, right, could the religious leaders be? And so they're coming out of that situation, that environment, and they're saying that they're changed, that they hear the message repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, that God wants your heart. We'll see in just a minute that with many other words, he spoke to them, so he gave them this good news, this message of God wants your heart, like with Abraham, where Abraham believed God, and God gave him righteousness because of that belief. And now he's saying, if you have this belief, produce fruit, change. Jesus also said this in Matthew 7, when he said, hey, um, He said, uh, blessed are those who hear my words and who do them. They're like the man who builds his house on the rock. But the guy who builds his house in the sand is the one who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice. And John the Baptist, his message was, put your faith into practice. And then we'll know that there's actual faith there. And then he says, he goes, and you know what? He said, don't, don't begin to say to yourselves, well, we've got Abraham as our father. 
We're Jews. We've got it made in the shade. Hey, we do that today. Well, I, I go to church. Yeah, I go to church. I try to do my best. I try to do my best. I don't cut people off in traffic. You know, I, people got all kinds of little boxes that they check to say that they're good people. And John is saying to them, D- don't give me this identity faith now. It's got to be real on the inside. He goes, I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. That's no problem. God can find children for Abraham. So don't give me that excuse. Because the axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit, every person who only says they believe, who only gives lip service, but then doesn't actually do it, they're going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. They ask a question, then what do we do? What do you want us to do? He says, well, now that you asked, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has lots of food should do the same. Share with the one who has no food. You know, somehow in our society and in our culture, there's this term, and, and can I... Let, would you just give me the, the, the kindness of let me just throw out the term without like attaching all kinds of stuff to it? Because this term in Romans chapter 12 where Paul says, don't let the culture, the world around you, shape you into what it is. There's this term called redistribution of wealth. And it's a negative term. And it's thought that, that I'm gonna take from you because you have too much, and I'm to give to the one who has nothing. Okay, so then we get into this, all this stuff about property rights and who deserves what, and, and there's, there's legitimate arguments to that, okay? There is legitimate arguments as to what, like, the government should do or should be allowed to do. That's, that's all fine. But what this says is a moral kingdom principle is that if there's somebody who has a lot, and there's somebody who has none, and the one who has a lot says they love Jesus, then they should share with the one who has none. So let's not confuse it with the the cultural uh, debate about redistribution of wealth, but let's understand it the way the Bible teaches that we should share. We teach our little kids to do that, right? Our grandkids are just at that age now where they don't want to share, right? Mine, it's mine, it's mine. And the one walks over to the other and just takes it and goes this way, and that one's crying, right? Because they don't, they don't want to share. We teach our kids to share. We just don't want to be forced to share, right? We don't want somebody coming into our house, taking what is ours, and giving it to somebody who we don't choose. But in that argument, sometimes we, we can throw the baby out with the bathwater and forget, forget that the teaching of the New Testament is that we would share voluntarily out of hearts of love and faith with people who have needs. So that's what he tells these people to do from the crowd. Now, even tax collectors came to be baptized. Even tax collectors, those, those stinking people who sit behind those tables and force you to give your money to them so they can give it to the Roman Empire, and then they even get more from you so that they can pocket it, and they got the muscle of the Roman Empire allowing them to do it, these stinking tax collectors. And John, Luke, records 
that even tax collectors came to be baptized. Such was John's influence. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? He says, don't collect any more than you're required to. He's not telling them not to collect any. He's not even telling them to leave their job. That's interesting. He's telling them, don't collect any more than what you're required to do. And then some, it gets even worse, some soldiers. Likely Gentiles. Could be some Jewish uh, Herodian soldiers uh, amongst the Jewish people, but likely Gentiles. So now we go from the crowd to tax collectors, Jews that are working for the Romans, and now you've got possibly Roman soldiers who aren't really good guys, likely, but as they're listening, their hearts are changed, and they even say, what should we do? And he says, don't extort money, and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Don't leverage the muscle of Rome to get what you want. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. In another gospel, it says that Herod would listen to John the Baptist and he was, he was quizzically drawn to him. He liked what he had to say and he would listen. But Herod's new wife didn't like John. Because John used to speak in Herod's ear and say, hey, what you did about getting rid of your wife and marrying your brother's wife, uh uh-uh, that doesn't fly with God. And so the wife of Herod wasn't very happy. And unfortunately, when you hang around with the wrong people, like this wife, who he shouldn't have had, he kept her, she kept him from listening to John. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe, Maybe Herod would have even turned. His position didn't help him much, but he was drawn to John. They were all drawn to John. You've got tax collectors, you've got soldiers, you've got even Herod who has this strange curiosity by this guy, so much so that people are saying in their hearts, John might be the Messiah. But John answered them and he says, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. He says, no, I'm not the guy, but the guy is coming. The guy is coming. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. He's only preaching what Jesus would come and then talk about as well. Uh, An imagery from the Old Testament too. You separate the wheat from the chaff. Honestly, I don't know anything about that. Some of you do. Some of you do because you work with the ground and you work with crops. I know nothing about that. All I know is that you separate the wheat from the chaff. Some of you could teach me. the winnowing fork is what did it. So, so here he was, he had separated, and John is teaching that there's, there's some, there are some that believe God, there are some that have faith, and then there are some that won't, and they will be set, they, that'll be figured out, and God knows. And with many other words, John exhorted the people, and he proclaimed the good news to them. We don't often think of exhorting with good news. We think of exhorting as as telling people what they should do, what they ought to do, because they're not doing it. But the gospel is good news. It's always good news. God's intervention into the lives of people 
is always good news with one exception. Within the Old Testament, you had this thing called the Mosaic Law, and the people said, hey, everything you've said we will do, and if we don't do it, you can punish us. That wasn't good news when they didn't do it, and then they were punished. But the prophets gave hope. And now at the beginning, the last prophet, we talk about the last Jedi, well, this is the last prophet, right? John is coming and he's bringing hope. He's preaching good news with many other words. Luke isn't even going to write them all down. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison and basically threw away the key. And then afterwards, he had his head chopped off, which isn't good. That's not a good day when you get your head chopped off. So you could say his ministry got cut short, no pun intended. I know, it was bad. I'm just trying to wake you up right at the last here, right at the end. So quick, what's it say? What's it mean? How's it affect me? What's the bottom line? God spoke to the prophet John, because Scripture is important. He spoke to the prophet. The Word of God came to him in the wilderness. He preached a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins, fulfilling Isaiah the prophet. John taught them how to very specifically begin living in a way that displayed their faith in God and in his, John's, in his message, sharing, not extorting, and being content. The people thought John himself might be the Messiah, but John said, no, no, that one much greater than him would come and baptize them with the Holy Spirit, not just water. John confronted Herod about his infidelity, and it ticked off his new wife, so Herod threw him in prison. Thus endeth John's ministry. What's it mean? Well, John the Baptist provoked a crisis. He provoked a crisis, resulting in the people of Israel looking up and looking ahead in expectant hope of an imminent future deliverer. John prepared the people for Jesus to come. You know that your life has been preparation up until this day, that you and I have opportunity to prepare people for Jesus to come into their lives. We do. We're the body of Christ. We are the Holy Spirit indwelt body of Christ. Our mission is to make disciples, to share the good news. Don't think that part of our ministry is not to prepare people to receive Jesus. That is part of our ministry. And your question and my question simply is, how, how has God designed me to do that? Because we're all in that business. That's part of our ministry. Luke writes about John even in his second book, in the book of Acts, in Acts 13, He says that John preached repentance and baptism to all the people of Israel. As John was completing his work, he said, who do you suppose I am? I'm not the one you're looking for, but there is one coming after me whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. Not only whose feet I'm not worthy to wash, I can't even untie his sandals to take them off. So even in Acts, Luke is still referring back to John because John had a significant ministry even though it was short. What else does it mean? A pattern has begun where God's servants begin a public ministry. They attract opposition, and sometimes it results in their imprisonment. But all the while, God's work continues to go forward. So are you going through stuff?
stuff in your life right now, that's okay. God is going to use that. He's next to you. He's saying, I got you. We can go through this together, and I can take the bad that comes, and I can use it to prepare you to continue to minister and serve me and make a difference in people's lives. Don't be afraid of tough times. The question is, how willing are we to engage in conflict and discomfort? How willing are we? The last what's it mean slide, John the Baptist, he fulfills Isaiah's prophecy and becomes the voice of one calling out in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. What's the bigger picture? The word of the Lord comes to the prophet who fulfills Isaiah, and he stages his ministry in both the wilderness and by the Jordan River. And there are echoes of the Exodus where the people came out and go into the wilderness. There's the echoes of crossing the Jordan. There's the echoes of the conquest and the battle of Jericho. And there's the echoes of John being a prophet fulfilling his prophetic role like a lot of the other prophets did, like this. Because the other prophets, remember Jesus says, you, you, you're like your forefathers who stoned the prophets and killed those that the Father sent to you. And John, the same thing. He's just like one of the Old Testament prophets. And so the people, they would see they're out in the wilderness, they're coming to the wilderness, they're coming to the Jordan. They would understand that. They would connect with him. How does it affect me? The gospel is good news. It's good news. And it changes how we think, And how we act. How we think of what we believe informs our actions, changes our actions. Being a follower of Jesus changes us. We become like him, loving God and loving others. That's how it's supposed to be. The greatest revelation of God did not come in his words to and through John the Baptist, but through the person of Jesus Christ, who becomes the deliverer, who is our savior, who is our king, and we follow our king. Last slide. John the Baptist and we. uh, John the Baptist and, and we will see even Jesus had to go through preparation for service to God. So the question is, where are you at? And how have you been prepared? And what is it time now for you to do? And you might say, well, I'm not involved in ministry. So if you're a believer and you look in 1 Corinthians 12, you're part of the body. Which is, if you're part of the body, that means you'd have to ask, what part are you? Because every part has a function. Every part of the body has a function. What function do you have? How has God prepared you to serve? Are you leveraging that giftedness, that experience, that skill, that that learning through struggle and pain and failure and trial and loss and grief and stress, how are you leveraging that to to make a difference? We as a church are not here to sit in lazy boys and be comfortable. We are here in our community to be the living, breathing body of Jesus Christ and to make a difference in our community. And doggone it, we are going to make a difference together over time, sometimes a lot all at once, sometimes just little by little every day, because Jesus said, I will build my church. I will build my church. And neither my death 
or the forces of darkness are going to prevent me building my church. And he's here through us. So again, I ask you, how are you involved in serving him? And let me give you a hint. Remember the boxes? It looks a lot like love. It's not hard. It's not rocket science. It looks a lot like loving relationships, loving service, and loving worship. And then God does the rest. So we love, we build relationships, we serve, we love God, and God will do the rest. He's at work, and he's at work through us.